Hello and welcome to another edition of the Mostly Weather Hall of Fame. My name is Doug McNeil and today I'm joined by podcast regulars Claire Whittam. Hello. Uh, Jeff Norwood-Brown. Hello. And Catherine Ross. Hello. And today I'm hoping to induct into uh, the Mostly Weather Hall of Fame the explorer Norwegian Fridtjof Nansen, with apologies to any of our Norwegian listeners. Um, so... Has anybody had a look at, at Fridtjof Nansen, guys, when you were looking at your background research here? Because I think he's he's a pretty good looking man. He is, yeah. And his Wikipedia page is just the most immense I've ever seen. It's very long. <laughs> and he's got these piercing blue eyes that stare out of you from Wikipedia, for example. And he's got a fantastic moustache. And he's a natty dresser. It was his moustache that struck me. The moustache is brilliant. <laughs> and... Um, he's just an all-round sort of interesting person. Um, and if you want to feel inadequate, you know, go and look up the scientific achievements and uh, other achievements of Fridtjof Nansen. So um, so maybe we'll just start. Um, I don't know if, if you guys saw recently there was a Google Doodle, I think, which which it, um, I, I didn't really know about him, but I saw a Google Doodle um, uh, for his 156th birthday, I think, so late 19th century explorer. Have you any idea why they chose his 156? I don't know. Google do that uh, slightly randomly sometimes, don't they? Yeah, you get really odd numbers on Google. I think it's just because they thought of doing it this year. They're trying to go, (laughs) they seem to be going through everybody important, but I think this was a really good one. So, um, so, so a young Fridtjof, uh, was, um, very sporty, I think, from a, from a young age, sort of born into a fairly well to do, uh, family just outside of, uh, Oslo, uh, in 1861. Uh, and as a as a young man seemed to uh, really take to the outdoors which you'd, you'd hope from an explorer and scientist um so he was a champion skier i think and a, a champion and broke broke the record for uh, uh ice skating uh i think the mile ice skating record as a, as a as a young guy um and then uh, headed off to university and um uh, decided to do zoology uh, again thinking that he'd spend a lot of time outdoors um, which, which he did, I think, because just after finishing university, he was sent off to, uh, a, an expedition of Greenland and took lots and lots of, uh, really interesting scientific measurements and, and basically fell in love with the outdoors. And this was when he was part of a student. Is that right? Was yeah, it, he was only a he young guy. He wasn't leading the expedition that he kind of I managed think to be in the right place at the right time. One of his tutors sort of said, we think you, 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 know, you would take well to uh, heading off to Greenland. Go and uh, take some measurements and look at some animals or something. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, I think lots of um, uh, uh, oceanographic measurements as well. So so during this time, apparently, he got the, the idea that it would, be, it would be great to cross the interior of Greenland. As now, you do. I was mm-hmm. going to say, yeah, I, obvious I, choice. I don't <laughs> think I was, I was, you know, quite that ambitious at that age. And, um, so this is obviously a special, special person. So, um, I quite like this idea. So, so, uh, quite a few people had, had made, um, expeditions to, to Greenland and, and, and tried to get across, but nobody had done what he planned to do, which was arrive on the east side, which was dangerous and uninhabited, basically unha- uninhabited. And travel westward towards civilization. So what they've done before is they've all turned up on the west side, this place called Disco Bay, and decided to go across to the east and then back again. It's a long journey, 
But what he did was turn up on the east side and said, well, we're head towards civilization and um, there's no going back, basically, because he couldn't go back to the uninhabited east side. And the concept being, yeah, because the east side is the dangerous side. Those that were setting out from the west thought, well, we, we'll never get picked up on the east. So we'll Yeah, we'll have to come back. back yeah. So, planning for a duration so often they turn, they turn around because Greenland I don't know, is a big sort of ice pile. Um, so the, 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 the center of Greenland, the middle of Greenland is much higher than the edges and the ice flows down, sort of snows in the middle and flows down to the edges. So it's two and a half, three thousand meters high. Like it's, it's, so it's like climbing a mountain all the way up into Greenland and all the way back down again. So, so they succeeded. So they, he returned to Greenland in 1888 and traversed the interior with a, a small team of six. Um, and they went up, up the big ice slope and back down again and, um, were really successful. So it was a couple of months ex- expedition, came back super famous. Suddenly. Yeah. I mean, they had their difficulties as well, didn't they? Because landing on the east side was challenging. And I think they, they took their ship to the east side, couldn't get close to the coast. So they sort of. They rode about. Yeah. They rode about in small little boats. They got drifted down to the south and then they finally managed to get around the, the kind of the dangerous ice and then had to row themselves back up north to get to a point where they wanted to start walking. They could actually. So they yeah. rode for about a month almost. That's like. right. Uh, it's amazing. I find even before, well, this, we'll come back to this with later exploration of expeditions, that idea of, well, you've got to wait around and, and get, wait till the conditions are perfect before you can even start doing anything. So, Catherine, you bought this, th- these um, fantastic um, books from the archive, which we, I hope to take some pictures of and, um, and, and, and put up on the show notes. So could you just tell us about um, uh, these books that you've bought? Yeah, uh, we've got uh, quite a nice collection of, of books about or by Nansen over in the archive. Um, and so I brought over The First Crossing of Greenland, uh, which is an account of exactly what you're talking about there. Um, fantastic um, picture on the cover here with, um, with some sledges, with uh, a, a, two, a couple of uh, skiers with sledges, um, and full Arctic gear, you know, they, they look like they use harnessing the power of the wind, um, to cross Greenland there. That's great. Yeah. And then the other one I've brought over is the, the, the uh, second actually of, of two volumes, which is called Farthest North, the voyage of exploration of the Fram, which is a later expedition that uh, Nansen took part in. And so that's the one that I think, um, so the first crossing of Greenland gave Nansen a real taste for adventure and exploration. Uh, and, and then sort of set up, I think he was kind of financially stable. He became famous then. He, he got a, um, uh, he got a job essentially and was attached to, um, uh, university, um, and, uh, was able then to plan his real adventure, which was, uh, which was to, to try and strike out for the North Pole, um, later on. So, so that was, um, so still a young man at this point, I think. Um, uh, but, but, and would it be fair to say, Doug, that actually his, his original scientific interest was kind of to do with almost neuro, what we would call neurobiology. Neurobiology. He wasn't a geophysicist at that point. That's in right, time. even though he became famous for it yeah. later. I think um, one of the sort of things that he established was the science of neurology with his PhD thesis, which was looking at um, uh, the neurology of, uh, of um, deep sea creatures, essentially. Um, and he, um, w- yeah. I, I, I prob- I, that's not my field, so I'm probably not going to go into that. <laughs> but no, no, I just find it really interesting. You know, one of the reasons I guess he was interested in originally going on these um, boat cruises, if you like, to do all the sampling, because he wanted to explore the sort of the animal side of the interactions in the ocean. And actually, and he's yeah. come at it from an entirely different scientific discipline than you might have conceived one of the great things i think about the this kind of age of exploration was just how flexible these scientists had to be um you know they had to be able to do everything they had to be able to carry out the expedition and be an expedition leader um 
you know, slide, slide across Greenland, um, uh, sail the boats, uh, lead a team, um, and do neurology and physical measurements and, you know, the, the whole works. I think these were really inspiring people. Yeah, they're kind of project managers come, you know, great scientists come, exp- uh, explorers all wrapped into one, aren't all they? All wrapped up into one. And, you know, natty dresses, which is <laughs> equally important. But I mean, flippancy aside, he is actually famed for designing new kind of clothing, actually, to, yeah, to I, make these expeditions. I hadn't realised when I looked up concepts of layering and things like that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and um, a particular uh, sledging stove uh, was was designed by him. So engineering as well. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And we'll get back to that maybe with um, some of the um, uh, the scientific um, measurement devices later on, which we became famous for as well. Um, but so we're, where are we? We're, uh, we're just about to go on the famous, uh, exploration of, of, of the North, um, which I, which was his, his big sort of achievement or early achievement, I guess. Um, so in the late 19th century. So, um, they designed the boat, the Fram, which again, that it means forward in Norwegian, that, that idea of only going forward, which we come back to again and again. Mm. Um, uh, which was a sort of, very, it's like a, almost like a tub-like boat, which was super, super strong um, and able to withstand pressures of the pack ice. Essentially, an icebreaker. An ice, an icebreaker. But, but um, you could retract the rudder, and um, uh, which meant that um, it was kind of uh, very robust to drifting in the ice as well. Um, and he had this idea, or he had heard of an idea, that uh, a lot of the um, exp- uh, expeditions that set out for the North Pole set out uh, from the west of, of the pole and travelled eastwards. Um, but he had this idea that there was a current f- flowing from east to west that these expeditions were battling against, basically all the way, all the way to the North Pole. So they weren't getting as far as they could. Um, so his idea was to sail round as far east as possible, enter the pack ice, and then have this current. Um, drag essentially the boat, which is specially strengthened, uh, westwards over the North Pole. So, so, and this was because one of the previous expeditions, um, which had, which had gone that way, the wreckage and bits of the expedition basically washed up further west. Ah. Yeah, this was a ship called the Jeanette, wasn't it? I think it was a US-led survey. And yes, they got wrecked or they sunk off the coast of Siberia in 1881. And you're right, Doug, about three years later, parts of this boat washed up on the shore of Greenland. And so people then started to postulate, well, how did it get there? You know, maybe there isn't solid land all the way in between. And I think... uh, Nansen might have also been to a talk by a meteorologist called Henrik Mohn, Mohn I think, yeah, yeah. Who, who then kind of developed this theory of what we might now call transpolar drift or something, um, which, you know, there's obviously he's having these ideas and talking about it in the sort of the university academic settings where Nansen is and Nansen's then seeing this and thinking, oh, I, I wonder. <laughs> there's an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mohn's writings are in the archive as well. And we've got this whole set of you know, Norwegian expeditions where he's written a great deal about all this sort Sort of thing. Oh, fantastic. Well, we'll see if we can get some of those as well. Brilliant. Um, so, so they set off, um, party of 12 in 1893, I think in the summer of 1893. Um, and, uh, they entered the back ice. I, I, there's a great, there's some brilliant oceanographic measurements going on at this point. Um, they, they encountered something called dead water. Have you heard of dead water? Oh, no. I've, uh, is it something to do it? with? 
different different water layers, but uh, it is. But I don't understand the physics of it. Actually. So they noticed they noticed that the Fram, which wasn't a, a terribly fast boat anyway, because it's designed to be a bit of a tub, um, was a. He said it was supposed to be able to you know get to six knots, which is fairly respectable, and at certain points. Um, they would only be able to do a knot or a knot and a half, um, even with the engine, you know, uh, they had a steam engine at this point. Um, and it turns out that if you have, um, if you have fresh water or brackish water, like relatively fresh water flowing in over really saline dense water, you end up with this layer, this sort of narrow layer on top, which your propellers are in. And you can, um, and it's almost like it's, 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 sliding over the dent the denser water below so your propellers are sort of um propelling you forward in this in this uh very light uh the less dense water and that's scooting over a layer of dense water underneath and you're not going anywhere so it's uh, yeah it's almost like it's you're shooting it out the back but it's not giving you any forward motion because you're sliding over okay um the denser water the layer of denser water underneath so it's this hadn't been encountered before. So we're taking lots and lots of measurements. I think they took a huge amount of measurements during the expedition. And the reason for this less saline layer, I guess, you've got ice melt happening? It's ice melt. It's less saline. So that means that um, it's literally not got as much mass. So it, it, it lies on top of the denser, colder, saltier water, essentially. So they entered the pack ice and began to drift in September 1893. Um, but they realized that they weren't making huge progress. They were making maybe a mile a day and they calculated that it would take years and years and years to get to the North Pole. So apparently, um, uh, Nansen and his uh, colleague, who was a dog sledding expert, Halmar Johansson, uh, decided to set out in March of 1895. So I thought, I guess, sort of 18 months. So they've all been stuck. After in they've the been stuck. Right, so they've been yeah. stuck. Yeah. He's just got a bit frustrated at lack of progress, I guess. So they got frustrated at lack of progress and then they started preparing. So they literally trained themselves for sledding, made clothes and decided to set out to the North Pole. Um, and actually they, that, that took them six months or something, their preparation phase. Huge amount they? of so preparation. They're clearly forecasting their motion in some way, they, they have. They they've know got time. In the drift. They know they've got time to do this. <laughs> they're they measuring very carefully where, where they going. go. Sometimes they go south. Sometimes they go north. But on average, only maybe you know very slowly a mile a day or so, or mile and a half a day. Um, so walking is going to be faster at that point. So it's interesting though because the original concept, in a way, which was does this current exist and will we be will we move from west to east, east to west? Sorry, uh, they're proving already. But he's obviously had this secondary goal if you like in the back of his head which is i want to go to the north pole because Definitely. nobody had been to the north nobody pole had been and to i'm the not going to get there at this rate yeah absolutely <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna run out of food they had five years worth of, of supplies so it was supplied for five years but I, which is a huge amount of time but i can imagine yeah um uh, and and things vary from year to year up there as well i, I think these these uh, currents don't always flow in the same direction at the same time uh, pack ice is variable you know it's it, it varies from year to year we're seeing a sort of trend um over over this part of the century, you know, with much more climate change happening of, of a reduction of the ice in, 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 uh, over the Arctic. But, but then, you know, um, it was still variable then. Um, so they decided to set out and they, they, they set out in 1895 in March um, and they marched against the drift um, and they finally decided that they weren't going to get much further um, at 86 uh, and a bit degrees, which was the furthest north, I think by over, over three degrees. Um, 
so only these two set out from the fram. They left the others in the in the fram, sort of drifting. And <laughs> said, "See you later." You know, and their their plan was to go um, as far north to the North Pole and then turn and come back to Spitsbergen, uh, which were relatively, I think, had just been. They had a sketch of where Spitsbergen was, the, this archipelago of islands, and they didn't know if, if it was an archipelago even, they didn't know what it was. So they, they were sort of, this was a big risk that they were taking. Into the unknown. Into the <laughs> unknown, the very sketchily, literally sketchily drawn uh, map of uh, of um, of the unknown. Um, so they got the furthest north, they decided to come back. Um, and is that just because they thought they were going to run out of they food? They were going to run out of food. Um, they were going to, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, weather as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's getting colder and colder. So they can only uh, travel really realistically during the months of the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end of August, um, they, they camped on an ice floe for a month and they drifted with that for a while, sort of, um, setting themselves up for more journey. And at the end of August, they reached Franz Josef land and, and they camped there for an entire winter. And then resumed in, in 1896, um, they resumed the journey. So they had a little hut and they could shoot, shoot, uh, I think walruses and, uh, and they had, uh, meat and whatever for, for that time. Uh, I think they got pretty bored, um, by all accounts. But, um, so this is, you know, this is a pretty epic expedition. They've been out there for years at this point. And I think before they, before they got there as well, there, I mean, we've got to remember this is, you know, the late 1800s. There's nothing like a GPS. No, no. They're, they're measuring their latitude very precisely, actually, but by using, um, chronometers and the stars and, and various other things. And, uh, you know, both of their chronometers stopped working. Oh, at the same time. At the That's same right. Same time, yeah. which suggests something about I don't know what <laughs> they've been designed That's just or bad temperature. Luck. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so they were also in. The, they were in lost. Way, they were lost to yeah. a degree with this sketch map of land that may or may not exist, and and yet they managed to find it, which is well, really quite remarkable. I think they had some bad luck. Apparently, um, the one oh, they, their kayak got attacked by a walrus, um, and this delayed them significantly. But um, but that turned their luck. Um, so they had to fix the kayaks. Uh, which they sort of lashed together at some point um, to sail uh, with. Um, There's a brilliant picture. We've got a great picture the of, of the sailing kayak from from furthest north, which uh, which I'll try and take a picture of and put up on the show notes. And it's literally two guys. I, I mean, it's a it looks like a collection of sticks, doesn't it? It is this collection of sticks. The kayaks are probably what would you say about two meters long from that picture? Yeah, two or three maybe they maximum. Erected a fairly a makeshift pole. mast. Yeah. yeah, very makeshift mast and a tiny sail, and and that's it with some quite rough looking. Well, I know Nansen had done this before. He'd, uh, when he was on Greenland, he'd, he'd um, made a made a boat out of like a sledge and some canvas basically and made it and and sailed down one of the fjords so so they must have been you know they were pretty good engineers as well Incredibly practical guy absolutely know. so the it turns out that the walrus attack was was very lucky because it delayed them long enough that they bumped into frederick jackson who is a british explorer who was exploring france Jos- josef land how can <laughs> which, which, considering there is literally nobody there in the middle of nowhere, in a land that nobody knows anything about, they just, just happen to meet up with another explorer. So this is this is one of my favourite bits of the story, actually, because because you know at this point Nansen's been missing for three years. They're both presumed dead. Uh, nobody's heard from the Fram because it's stuck in the pack ice. And uh, and and Nansen said, oh, "I heard bells, so I stepped out." And um, and apparently there was a very sort of awkward meeting where he sort of walked out and there was another person there. And uh, there's this British British explorer, Frederick Jackson, and they kind of looked at each other awkwardly. And he said, you're Nansen, aren't you? And he said, yes, I am Nansen, <laughs> which, I th- which I think is a brilliant. Oh, OK. Who else is it going to be out here? <laughs> yeah, who else is stuck out here? Yeah. 
so they were able to 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 get home after you know a huge journey on on foot. They'd shot their dogs um, and fed the dogs to each other, and then I, I think eaten the dogs. So th- this this was you know pretty pretty tough life they were having. Um, but immediately upon getting back, they were welcomed, you know, uh, with, with, as heroes, um, hugely popular, um, back to Oslo, um, uh, eventually, uh, to crowds of thousands of people uh, again and became very famous. Um, not overnight, it was famous before, but super famous this time. Um, and published this, uh, description of the expedition. I think, uh, within a few months basically it was published uh, very very the year after in english uh, i understand so i'm really pleased that we've got this uh this account this first edition account here i, I think it's great um so we'll try and get some great pictures up on, on the show notes as well um i'm gonna i'm gonna take i would like to take that home and read it i think i'm gonna have to go to the archives i'm Is that not right? gonna be able to let you take that home oh, i didn't think so, you'll have to come to the archive and see it but uh, anybody else can as well it's uh, all open to the public definitely worth a trip definitely worth a trip we, we shouldn't forget about the Fram at this point. As the well, Fram. Just <laughs> yeah, what did happen? So the Fram, <laughs> the Fram was finally really, I haven't got the, uh, I could look up the date, but the, the Fram was released from the pack ice at about the same time, I think, and then made its way back round and there was a big, and then they all met up together. So. I think you're right. I think that's what's even more bizarre, coincidentally, that the Fram seemed to be spat out of the pack ice, if you like, near Spitsbergen within kind of weeks. We, oh, is that right? Okay. Of, I, I didn't see that detail. But yeah. in, in northern, uh, northern Norway. And so they almost were able to all return to Oslo at about the same time. About the time, same time. Phenomenal, Excellent. Really. And the fact that, you, I don't know, if, did all of them survive the expedition? I think all of them survived, yeah. So that's, yeah. that's another yeah. huge dogs, achievement. Yeah, 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 the dogs, yes. You know, a huge achievement of, 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 of its time, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. So why are we talking about this big expedition? Well, from a scientific perspective, um, I've got a polar scientist here, uh, Robert Rus- Rudmose Brown, who said, um, that the expedition was to Arctic oceanography what the Challenger expedition had been to oceanography of, of the other oceans. So the Challenger expedition was basically the start of modern oceanography. Um, in 1872, HMS Challenger was a British ship, uh, which basically invented oceanography. And I think, um, this, uh, expedition invented Arctic oceanography. And also, I mean, there were, there were very, um, there was a huge amount of data they collected huge amount of notes that they took, which took years and years and years to publish. So the, the public account came out very quickly, but the data that was collected during their expedition went into huge numbers of things. So, um, for example, it provided the data which established something called the Ekman spiral, which is a cool piece of oceanography where uh, if you have a wind blowing over the sea, it creates a current, but it's diff- because of the Coriolis effect, it's deflected to the right in the northern hemisphere so you, it doesn't go at the same in the same direction as the wind it goes sort of an angle but because the ocean is layered because of these dense layers you know dense less dense and then more dense layers um that produces a, a almost like the same um force on the on the layer below and so that deflects right as well and the same happens and you end up with this lovely spiral staircase of currents which go down into the ocean depths which were um which were i think theoretically predicted and then um the the data was collected by nansen which sort of proved that this was the case by by ekman so so, so as you go yeah you're going down through the atmosphere uh, the atmosphere the the ocean every single layer is slightly offset 
to the right. That's right. So it's deflected to the right. Currents are all sorts of different directions, and and they spiral around. They spiral. They spiral down, down down through. Yeah, it almost it almost looks like a spiral staircase as you go down through. It helps with mixing all sorts right. of interesting things going on. So so huge numbers of um, uh, important um, measurements taken. You know, theory proved, and as I say, it took years. So. Um, Oh yeah, that's right. If if you really want to feel in, in, inadequate, Nansen got his 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 Nobel Prize, of course. Um, <laughs> of course, but not for that. Not for any of the you know huge amounts of scientific data. But f- you know, just the small. It was the Nobel Peace, Peace Prize he got. So that was a bit later on. He invented something. He was a diplomat um, in, in his later life. Um, he did huge amounts of work with refugees after the First World War. Repatriated half a million people from Russia. Um, and uh, and then uh, helped um, mitigate the effects of of, um, of starvation in Russia later on, and, and saved millions of people essentially. So so got a Nobel Peace Prize. Which I think is funny because I think he tried to avoid his becoming embroiled in politics throughout. I his utterly failed by the sounds of it. Failed. <laughs> I think yeah, he ended up being a sort of a representative to the UK for a while and tried to get out of it, and then got sent back again. And yeah, then then got very much involved with what I guess has now. Am I right in thinking it's now become part of the United Nations? That's right. It was the League of Nations at the time. Um, invented something called the Nansen Passport, which is a, um, a document that they gave to people who were stateless, who were refugees, so that they could cross border borders legally and we've still got a uh, sort of modern version of that i think is still given out and recognized um so huge numbers of very famous people um uh, in the early part of the 20th century would would were saved um because of him um and also invented something called the nansen bottle uh which is a, a crucial piece of oceanographic equipment which is i guess the last thing i wanted to talk about this is quite a f- cool piece of kit. This really, is a cool piece of kit. Think about how it works. It's still it's one of the foundations of modern oceanography, actually. And, and it was in use until 1966 when a slightly more modern version was invented. But it basically works on very similar principles. So it was sort of 100 years. Yeah, of absolutely. It's still, it's still really the same bottle. So it's just a bottle. So the, the, the thing with the oceans is they're utterly unknown. You can't look with satellites into them, into the depths of them. You can't see them, you know. Um, so you have to sort of get bits, you have to go down there or get bits up of the ocean up. And if you know what the structure of the ocean is in terms of its temperature and its salinity and, you know, and depth, you can work out what the currents are doing because essentially sort of things flow downhill and densities within the ocean make hills of water, if you like. So you can actually predict, um, or, or measure ocean currents if you measure the properties of seawater at depth. Ah, so you can start, I guess, drawing these things on a map. You can like draw them, yeah, absolutely. Draw contours. You can start drawing contours, but for within the ocean. That's right. And then you take into account the Coriolis force and the wind surface currents, but at depth, you know, you've got these these currents that are moving. And, and um, so understanding what the temperature of the water is and what the salt content of the water is at a particular depth is really important. And he invented a bottle, which is a, um, you drop it on a line, to a certain depth and then you chuck something called a messenger after it which is a brass weight which whizzes down the line hits the top of the bottle inverts the bottle and at the same time it locks off a sample of seawater at depth Um, at the same time a a thermometer inside um, flips upside down and and breaks a little piece which preserves 
the temperature. So you've got the depth, you know the depth because you know how far down it is on the on the cable. Uh, you've got the temperature preserved and you've got a sample of the seawater, which you then bring back up and you can measure the salt content of. So you know it's its temperature, its depth and its, uh, uh, and its um, salinity content. It's so clever, really. You know, you're just dropping a stone effectively down a line. That's right. And, and well, the cool thing is that then the that it triggers the bottle and that triggers another stone which goes down further. So you can, so you know... you can stack them up. You can stack them on the, on the oh, table. Oh, that is so clever. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So we haven't really invented anything much better. We still, you know, send very similar instruments down. Yes, in theory, you could have a, a line, well, sort of, I guess, hundreds of metres long. Really, thousands, thousands to. of metres long, and then it, often, yeah. Yeah, so 100 metre points or something, you'd have another bottle, and each one you just get your, your stone, if you like, hits the top of one, which triggers the next one, which goes down and just cascades all the way cascades down. Cascades all the way down. And then you've got the structure of the ocean to depth, and, and you can you work out the current. At one point, yeah. all in one go. All in one go. <laughs> and then you bring them all back up, and you move along the line, and you take another one. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's how you do ocean sampling in a, in a nutshell, um, and so that 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 is still used um, very similar uh, methodology used today. I mean, we've got um, things which trigger at depth and whatever, but you still have to go and grab a piece of sea from underneath, the, you know, from four thousand meters or whatever, mm-hmm. so and drag it up. So I I think um, this is a really large you know body of work that's been produced by Fritjof Nansen and um, and also. Such an atty dresser deserves to go in. <laughs> so I, I suppose I'm going to challenge you, Doug, okay. given that we're, you know, the mostly weather podcast. And, you know, he's OK. He's a cool adventurer, but he's also done a huge amount for oceanography. So just kind of remind us why that's so important to weather and, and other things in the atmosphere. So um, the ocean is the like it's the long term storer of information and energy for the climate. It's one of the major ways where, you know, um, you've got huge amounts of energy coming in at the equator uh, and that's moved north uh, and south, you know, away from the equator um, by the atmosphere and the ocean. Um, uh, uh, but it, the ocean does it in a much on much kind of longer timescales. So a lot of the climate, the sort of background climate is set by the ocean. And until until, you know, this great age of exploration we weren't getting huge amounts of data from the ocean because most of it's hidden and so we didn't understand the full picture of weather you can't understand the full picture of weather and climate unless you have good data and so i i think this was a great um uh, a, a great contribution to, to to the science of weather and climate through that part of the system because you can't treat them separately. You can't treat you them separately. Treat you have them to couple them, them, and our models are coupled to this day. You only have to look at the Gulf Stream, don't you? I mean, and how that influences sort of uh, northern Europe and western Europe. And if you look at the same latitude in North America, it's far, far colder because they don't have the influence of the warm ocean currents. Absolutely. Uh, and that carries on all the way around, in fact, to, you know, to Norway and uh, and Scandinavia and, and parts of, of Russia up there as well. I mean, it's, yeah, um, it's a massive energy... Um, uh, boost to those to those northern latitudes definitely um, i find it interesting as well you're talking about your spiral there i've forgotten the name Doug. the Ek- ekman spiral the ekman spiral i mean it just sounds like i mean if you, if you flip that upside down it sounds like a low pressure area uh, that you oh, would have yeah. in the atmosphere i mean it's exactly the same sort of system you know you have uh, friction involved in it and the coriolis effect and yeah. uh, you know things trying to balance out and uh, and that's all it is it's right. it's almost like a reflection then you've got the jet stream above that which is sort of uh, similar to the Gulf Stream, really, in, in the ocean, you know. So, so I guess the, the, the differences are the scale, aren't they, Jeff? Because um, the ocean's much more viscous. 
Yes. But uh, but apart from that, some of the dynamics are very similar. I mean, it sounds like uh, uh, they look they even look similar. Yeah, well, they, they, they treat the atmosphere as a, as a fluid, you know, so they, they use fluid dynamics in, uh, in uh, atmospheric modelling and, you know. So am I, uh, am I able, will you give me permission to induct Fichoff Nansen into the Mostly Weather Hall of Fame? I think so, yeah. I think that's a convincing argument. <laughs> yep, I'll, I'll definitely go with that. Fantastic. We got a nod from Jeff. Oh, well, sorry. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> if only for his fashion range, yes. <laughs> There's a man who likes a good hat. Well, thanks very much for listening. Um, we'll be back with a Mostly Weather Hall of Fame inductee pretty soon. Um, but until then, I'd like to say thanks very much to Catherine Ross. Thanks. I'd like to say thanks very much to Jeff Norwood-Brown. Thank you. And thank you to Claire Whittam. Thanks. And join us again on the Mostly Weather podcast. Thanks.